First, of course, he did three scenes from Godfather 2. He still does that? I love that! Phil, I'm warning you. If you mention the Godfather to him, I will rip your arms out of the sockets and beat you to death with him. Hey, Glenn, let me ask you a question. Who had Frankie Pantangeli killed? Phil! The Rosanna brothers. <gasps> Who gave the orders? There was this kid I grew up with. He was younger than me, sort of looked up to me, you know. Glenn. We did our first work together. Worked our way up the streets. Things were good, we made the most of it. I gotta change. During Prohibition, we ran molasses into Canada. Made a fortune. Ran molasses to Canada, you should run some brains to your head. Hello, and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast. Coppola cast season two. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. And I'm the other guy, Brian Conley. And I apologize, you can hear my dog in the background. She thought this episode's about the dog father. We're not talking about that movie. We're talking about the Godfather movies. <laughs> yeah, so right in the heart of Coppola's uh, you know, awesome run through the 70s, we just talked about the conversation. Now we're ready for Godfather 2, the sequel some say is better than the original. Some may say this. We, will we say this? We'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see who will say what. Uh, so as always, we start our episode talking about the Coppola wine. So why don't you talk about what you have? All right. So it's a wine we've had before, but not for a while. At least I don't think. I have the Director's Coppola Sonoma County 2017 Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, there's no legend on here, ah, but the label, see, I remember this, the label has a bunch of little uh, figures, like a devil on a ball doing a little dance. And it says, this label is a replica of 19th century art used in a zoetrope, producing the illusion of a moving picture. This unique Sonoma wine honors the uncompromising standards necessary to make great films and wine. What do you think about it? Do you like it? I like it. It's a, it is, of course, a, a red. It goes down smooth, though, and it is a bit on the, uh, the fruitier side. So I guess this, that would be the fruit forwardness we keep reading on all of the labels of wine. Yeah, this is a good wine to have. Like, uh, said it on every time we've had a red like i always wish i was having a steak or some food to go with it but this if you want to just have a glass of this and relax like we're doing right now it's pretty good i also have a cabernet sauvignon uh this is the francis coppola diamond collection 2017. i don't think we've done this one before we did the one you just did and we've done the ivory label one and though the label on this one i would also say is Ivory, it does not say it's ivory labels. I think it's a different thing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read what this one says. Dramatic style, vibrant packaging, and fruit forward, smooth wines are the signatures of Francis Coppola Diamond Collection. Our Cabernet is highly concentrated with aromas of blackberries, cherries, and spice, with flavors of plums, currants, dried herbs, and toasted oak. Delicious with steak tacos, that's specific, prime rib, or pasta with red sauce. Learn more about our wines at FrancisFordCoppolaWinery.com. 
Uh, this one also is very fruit forward. Uh, I learned with, uh, with the Coppola Reds, you really want to let it breathe. I opened this one up 30 minutes ago, and man, is it smooth. Mm. I opened this one up not 30 minutes ago, but then I put a, a wine stopper in it to keep it from spilling as I brought it into my podcasting studio, a.k.a. the guest room of my house. <laughs> uh, so I don't know that it's actually been breathing. There you go. <laughs> well, I went to uh, the local liquor store the other day and I loaded up on every couple of wine they had. So it'll be interesting if we did an episode where we happen to just line up with the same one. I bought like eight different things. I've got everything they got. They deliver to your car. It's great. So you don't have to interact with anybody with germs. And uh, so I'm, I'm ready for the next eight episodes. I'm stocked up. All right. Yeah, we haven't uh, stated it every recent episode, but we are safely social distance podcasting from our respective houses because it's bad out there in Texas right now. Yeah, and uh, only time will tell what uh, Fourth of July weekend did, if people were safe and smart or whether in a week and a half the hospitals are overfilled. But we're... We're drinking wine and watching some long Coppola movies, as you should be doing. This is what you, this, take advantage of the situation and to stay home and watch really long, great movies. Like this is the time to watch Berlin Alexander Platz, people. It's right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess so. We're doing The Godfather Part Two, and I guess I have the awful task of uh, recounting this very elaborate plot. Is that true? It's my turn? It is. You're a braver man than I, Gunga Din. All right. I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to try to say a lot of character names because this movie is very complex. Like, the first Godfather is a long epic tale, but it's definitely more intimate, where this movie is more like a rich book. And there's, like, so much going on, and there's so many characters that I'm bound to leave some out. So I'm going to give, like, the best I can do. Is it the, I'm going to try to do this without even looking at the Wikipedia page. Maybe you can throw in people's names if I don't remember their names. All right, so we start way long ago in Sicily in the early 1900s. Does that seem right? Like 1901. And uh, we're with uh, the Corleone family, uh, but that's not what they're called at the moment. And it's little Vito, and uh, it's, it's him, like it's, his, it's a funeral for his dad. Is that right? Am I getting this right so far? I'm trying to recap. And they're having this funeral for his dad because the dad pissed off the local mafioso guy and he got, got killed. Uh, and then while this is going on, uh, Vito's brother gets killed by the same guy because Vito's brother is trying to act some sort of vengeance. So then the mom goes to the mafia guy and was like, please, like, we got to stop this. Like, please leave my little son alone. Vito, he's not going to mess with you. And the mafia guy's like, I can't, like, I don't believe you. Like, this is just how, how it's going to work out. And he ends up killing the mom, and little Vito runs away. Uh, and this is, of course, the Marlon Brando character from the original movie, but as a little boy. Uh, so we're, we're in a prequel. I thought this was part two. What are we doing in a prequel? But wait, now we're in the sequel, where we are going to, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a communion party for Michael Corleone's uh, son had his first communion and they're having a huge party and uh, this is the biggest I didn't know people threw such large parties for a first communion but you know 
if you're Catholic and you have money, go wild. So having a huge party, and it's very much like the beginning of the original Godfather, where it's like this very long party scene. All of his uh, brothers, Michael's brother, siblings are all there. You know, you have you have your uh, Fredo, Tom Hagen, Connie, uh, all these people. But Michael, just like Vito in the first movie, is taking meetings while the celebration is going on. And one such meeting he has is with a guy named Frankie, played by the great Michael Gatto. If you've, if you've ever seen the movie Alligator, he's great in that. And he, he's complaining that he can't kind of like run his legitimate business and do his things for the family because he has this other family called the Risottos, I think, who are messing with them. And he's like, you got to take care of the Risottos. And then uh, the risottos are, um, and Michael's like, you can't, we can't do anything with them because they are, they deal with Hyman Roth, who is a Jewish gangster who's going to help Michael Corleone do like some good business in Las Vegas. So he's like, we can't do anything with the risottos. I'm so sorry, but we got to wait for this, for this to happen. And also at the same time, you have this senator, this, the, the Nevadan senator, as I say it, Nevadian, Nevada, Nev- let's just say a senator from Nevada, <laughs> played by G. G. D. Spradlin, who uh, you'll see, we'll see later in Apocalypse Now is one of the army guys. But he plays Senator Pat Geary, and he is not happy. Like he gives this, first he gives this nice speech at the communion, being like, oh, this is so wonderful. But then behind closed doors, he's like, I hate you Italians, get out of my state. But, you know, you just ru- you're just ruining Las Vegas. <laughs> he basically does not want them around. It doesn't like them coming in, pushing people around, saying that they own the place because he's sort of like, a, you know, he feels like the kind of a senator you'd see from Nevada. He's like a little bit country. He's definitely kind of like Kennedy-esque in a way, a very, just like a very well-groomed uh, white man. But he's basically like, I, like you gotta, and they, and they get into a little tiff with him and Michael about like, you gotta follow this and do that. And Michael's like, no, I'm not gonna, we're going to do the casinos our way. We're not, in fact, you're going to pay for this thing. And there's this whole, because this is the mob now moving in on Las Vegas. Like this is what casino is about, basically. So then later that night, there is a hit on Michael, like where, they, where he's in the bedroom and his wife, played by Dan Keaton, is like, hey, why are the curtains open? He's, and before he can even answer, bullets rain in from outside into the bedroom and he dives down and they, release the dogs and try to find the shooter. Because if you've invested in, you know, dog patrol in your house, you might as well release them. You might as well use them to your benefit. And they catch the guys and the guys are dead. Unfortunately, they, they, they were killed. And so he's like, who could have done this? Why is this? And he suspects even that it was Roth who sent these people. And he suspects that Roth knows that the risotto, is that, am I saying it right again? Auto brothers are messing me, Frankie in New York. And he said, Michael tells Frankie, lay low, it's fine. I think Roth put this hit on me. I think we're just going to pretend that we're okay. We're making peace. But then we're going to, you know, until like, basically like until he gets what he wants in Las Vegas, then he'll take care of these people that are not doing well. Then you, you keep, and the movie cuts back and forth between uh, the early 1900s with Vito and modern day or modern day for this movie, which is the 50s. late 50s, yeah. And so back into the past, now Vito is gone to Ellis Island. He's, he's made the trip that many immigrants took in the early 1900s, late 1800s. 
to America from Europe. He uh, goes through, this is how he gets the name Corleone because he says he's from Corleone. And the, and the guy at the office, at the immigrant office is like, okay, that's your last name now. This is, this, this is your name, right? Is that what happened? Did I read that part right? That's yeah, the, his real name is actually Vito Andolini. Yeah, and he's like, no, no, this is your name now. And he's like, okay. And that's, I think that happened a lot with uh, immigrants who came in then is their names were often changed when whatever uh, Anglo-Saxon keeping the books was like, I can't pronounce his name. Your name is now this. Or like, you know what? This is now your last name. Uh, <laughs> friends of mine of Italian descent in college that, uh, that happened to their ancestors. Mine too, not to go on a tangent, but uh, my family came from Sicily around the same time. And they, their last name was Gerano, but originally it was Gerano. And for whatever reason, the person was like, no, no, it's Gerano now with an O. That sounds more Italian, I guess, to be like, no, it's Gerano, not Gerano. Anyways, he goes over and you see him do that. And then we also, I mean, I'm going to kind of go out of order a bit because the movie, it's a little confusing. Then we also get Vito as a younger man played by the very handsome Robert De Niro. And uh, we basically see Robert De Niro kind of working in the store, uh, basically being legitimate. But then there's this other gangster in town who's kind of running the neighborhood, getting money from everybody, protect, you know, protecting them, protecting the hood, who, tell, who tells his boss, no, my nephew's working today. You got to get rid of this guy. So Robert De Niro loses his job and is replaced by the nephew or whatever of this, of this crime boss guy. I'm totally messing this plot up order, I'm sure. But back, back to uh, the, the, the 50s. Michael has gone to Cuba to hang out with, um, to hang out with Roth and to try to work out this deal and also work out kind of the deal because at the time Cuba was a big tourist place and there was casinos and the, and the mob and people were trying to, and gangsters were trying to make money off of having casinos there as well. And so they're kind of work there. He's kind of being shown Cuba, but unfortunately, because it's the 50s, this is when the big revolution is beginning to happen in Cuba. And the whole time, Michael's kind of like, I don't know if this is going to work out. I don't know if we're going to be able to have this thing here. So he has money he's supposed to give Roth to kind of go into this business, but he's holding back because he's seeing all these crazy protests and up the uprising of the Cuban revolution. Um, at the same time, they're, they're going out to stuff, and, and the Fredo's there, and he introduces Fredo to uh, one of Roth's uh, men who's played by, I think that's Uncle Junior from The Sopranos, right? That's uh, Dominique Ch- Chiet, I'm going to murder his last name, Ch- Chinese, Chinese, but, uh, and he's like, oh, I've never met this guy in my life, and, but then literally, like, 30 minutes later, Fredo's just like, oh, yeah, this guy, he showed me this club before. Oh, this is great. And then to zoom in on Al Pacino behind him, like, being like, hmm, my brother lied to me. My guess is he knew that that hit on me was going to happen. And then, of course, we soon get the very famous uh, part where he, uh, he pulls Fredo close, gives him a kiss, and uh, say the line, AJ. I knew it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart my heart and Fredo's like oh but then even with that uh, Michael's like but come with me come we have a private plane we gotta leave the country the is revolution coming. breaks out like it happens that night and then you have all these great uh, scenes of like these epic scenes of just like crazy revolution going 
on and like all the tourists just trying to hightail it out of there as quickly as they can go. Just trying to, everyone's just like getting out of that country because they didn't want to be in the middle of a, of a, of a war, of a revolution. Oh, um, Uncle Junior. What? That was Uncle Junior. I didn't recognize him at all. Right? He's just, well, because he was a young man back then. As, as young of a man as he could look as for a bald, you know, bald man. So that happens. Back, let's go back to the early 1900s. It's like 1917, something like that. Uh, so now uh, we follow Vito as him and his friends, uh, played by Bruno Kirby and the dude from The Wedding Singer, um, Frank Severo, who you also recognize. He was one of the guys in Goodfellas. He has, always has that nice little tight perm, a uh, little uh, Italian Afro look. They're kind of, they owe money to the, to, the, to the big gangster guy or want to pay him or something. So, so Vito's like, I'll take care of it. I'll give him an offer he can't refuse. A, line, a throwback line to the first movie. And he goes to meet this gangster guy. He was like, okay, yeah, like, here's a hundred bucks is all we got. But like, hey, like, we will give we, we, all, all for you. And this is going on during um, the big, what is the, the saint, the big parade? San Gennaro. Yeah. The Lower East Side of New York. Still, festival still happens. Still happens. Uh, interesting enough, there's also a scene of Robert De Niro, I think, walking amongst the in Mean Streets. So he, De Niro's, uh, Vito goes up to the rooftops, and this is my favorite scene in the movie, and it stuck with me since I first saw it. And he's like slowly walking from building to building on the rooftops, following this gangster down below, walking through the street festival. And he just know it, nothing good's going to come of it. And he walks and he walks and he follows him and basically breaks into the apartment where he lives and shoots him in the way that De Niro would like lovingly shoots people in the face in, in most movies. And then he becomes sort of respected Vito in his community for kind of taking care of the shitty guy and also just, you know, being a well-liked guy. And he basically becomes the godfather character we all know and love. And he's now the respected uh, guy walking through the street, you know, telling people like, thank you and people thanking him. And, uh, and we have this great uh, part where he approaches a landlord and was like, hey, is this lady that I, it was a friend of a friend, like she can't pay her rent. And I know she has a dog that barks, but you just got to have to like lower her rent and let her have her dog there. And the landlord's a real jerk to him at first. And he's like, ah, you can't tell me what to do. Or are you punk? Yeah, he and offers <laughs> to pay the landlord extra rent. He's like, here's $10 on top of the rent for six months. And like, just have her stay. And he's like, no, no, I don't want this. Like, forget it. And then like, in my mind, 10 minutes later, the guy realizes, oh, wait, that's, that's uh, Vito Corleone. I, I, that's, the, that's the godfather. I don't want like, to die. So he runs to him and is like, oh, I'm so sorry. No, I know who you are. In fact, yeah, of course she gets to her, of course. And then basically Vito's like, you know what? And you should just lower her rent anyways, like a lot. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, of course, of course. And then uh, in one of my other favorite scene, the, the landlord goes to leave and he can't open the door. <laughs> he can't, he's trying to nervously leave and he just can't do it. And I guess this actor was really good at slapstick and uh, Coppola knew that. And he purposely uh, locked the door and didn't tell him. So that whole scene is like, he didn't even know that he couldn't get out and it's him trying. And uh, it's really funny. It's really good. Cut now to present day again. Michael found out that his wife had a miscarriage. Then it turns out it actually wasn't an abortion. And she just didn't want her, another son in this messed up family. And of course, this is, this is tragic and upsetting to Michael. 
On top of that, the, the U.S. Senate is investigating the mafia. And Frankie has thought that, uh, oh, I forgot. <laughs> this is so complex. Why am I doing this? Frank, Frankie, uh, that's his name, right? Michael Gotso. Frank Pantangeli. He goes to make peace with the Rosados. And one of them is played by Danny Aiello. I didn't notice that. But I'm not recognizing a lot of young people in here. And he'll never look young, AJ. <laughs> but they try to kill him, basically. He tries to make peace with them, and then they try to kill him. And they kill him, and they, they, try, they say Michael Corleone says hello just to fuck with him and make him think that Michael Corleone is killing him. And I guess that was a Danny Aiello ad-lib, and Coppola loved it that he made him do it in every other take. And I guess Danny Aiello was so nervous, he didn't even realize he said that, and he doesn't even know why he said that. He just said that. His, the rest is history. So, but he, a cop comes in, because this is all taking place in a bar. A cop comes in and he's like, hey, what's going on in here? And, and Frankie gets away. And this amazing kind of scene, there's like a little bit of like a shootout in the street and the Joe Spinell, who's sort of Frankie's right-hand man, is a part of it. And there's like all this, it's really exciting. That, that part's really fun. So that happened. Uh, but then later on, Frankie thinks that somehow Michael was involved in that. So then he turns... And, and, and it goes to rat everyone out in front of the U, this U.S. kind of Senate hearing on the mafia. And so they have this whole trial in a way where they, they bring in Michael and they bring in the, uh, Frankie and they kind of talk through, like, did you know this person? They, like, they basically want these people to admit that they're in the mafia. Michael plays a little trick bringing in Frankie's brother from Sicily and just the shame of saying this stuff in front of his brother, the fear, Frankie just turns and is like, Oh, you know what? There's no mafia. Never mind. I totally made all this up. I don't know what I'm saying. And the sentence like, what do you mean? You're a key witness. What are you doing? And it kind of kills the whole, kills the whole thing, kills the whole hearing. Whew. Um, we're almost there. So then like the network, let's, we're in the kind of the end of the, of the movie a bit in a way, a very long movie. So you have back in the early 1900s, Theo has a bunch of kids. He's being the godfather. His life is great. He goes back to Sicily finds the mafia guy who killed his entire family, who's now this old man, cuts him open, kills him, gets away. Great, smooth move, classic. <laughs> Back to present day, or 50s, or whatever. Everything goes bad with everybody. <laughs> Where he uh, basically, so Roth tries to escape to Israel for asylum. because Oh, because I totally spaced, I forgot. Michael sent his hitman to kill Roth while they were still in Cuba and fucks it up and gets killed by like the police and doesn't succeed in doing that. The last so, act of the Cuban government. Yeah, the last act. So then Roth tries to escape to Israel, can't, comes back to the States. He gets killed by uh, a member of the, of the mob. Because yeah, Michael's still like, I, I beat the Senate, but everyone still has to die. It's basically the same ending of the first Godfather. It was like, we need to be the only players in this game. We got to get rid of everybody, get rid of all our enemies. So they kill Roth. They make Frankie kill himself. They kind of give him, uh, Tom, uh, Robert Duvall, kind of give him this little talk of like, hey, you know, like, this is, this is yeah, like, we'll take care of your family, but like, we, you kind of, because you turned on us, even though we're fine now. You gotta die. I think he uses an analogy of like ancient Rome or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. He talks about when a plot against the Roman emperor failed, the uh, 
assassins, if they were of high rank, were allowed to take the honorable way out. And if they did that, then their families were taken care of. Yeah. And so he kills, Frankie kills himself in his, uh, his hotel, his uh, witness protection hotel, slits his wrist in the bathtub. You did notice Harry Dean Stanton though, right? As one of Absolutely, the- Absolutely, yes. He was one, he's one of like the FBI guys, like playing cards, protect, like in the hotel room, protecting Frankie. Um, Harry Dean Stanton, great. Um, doesn't really say much in the movie. He just kind of, it's kind of like, hey, are you in there? I think that's about it. So that happens. Uh, meanwhile, Diane Keaton keeps trying to see her kids because Michael kicked her out because she had this abortion. And there's this great tragic scene where she's there hanging out with the kids and Talia Shire, Michael's sister, is like, you need to leave. He's coming now. He doesn't, like, you, you don't want him to find you here. She's about to leave. Michael appears around the corner, silently just sees her, walks up, shuts the front door on her and just locks it and just walks away. It's so cold. It's so horrible. So then, then the big tough decision is he needs to kill his brother, Frito. Fredo, I always want to say the name of the Hobbit. And, and, and he basically makes a promise being like, not while mom's alive. Well, then mom dies. And so the next thing on the agenda is got to kill his little brother, or his, sorry, his older brother. And, uh, and he goes, he basically, he thinks he's going fishing and he gets shot in the back of the head. That's basically the movie. I'm sure there's so much I've left out. Like I said, this is like a book. And... Then the last shot is uh, Michael Corleone. And this actually, I found out, takes place way later. I guess this scene's supposed to, like, if you look closely, he's got, like, wrinkles and a little bit of gray hair. And it's supposed to take place in, like, the late 60s. This shot of him just looking out at the lake, remembering when his brother was killed there. When he ordered the murder of his brother. And that's Godfather 2. And they messy, awful, like... Clearly, you can enjoy it much more watching it than hearing me ramble. But it's just, the thing is, the movie's very, it's long, 200 minutes, and uh, it's epic. Okay, I'm going to take a break from talking and drink some water. You talk now. All right. So this movie Coppola got to make with no studio interference. He didn't want to make The Godfather. He didn't want to make The Godfather 2, but Paramount really wanted a sequel to the biggest movie at the you know ever made at the time so he made his conditions he's like i want you know a million dollars or whatever i want robert evans to not be involved at all and i want it to be called the godfather part two (laughs) and the studio was like here's your money don't worry robert evans won't be involved he's gonna produce chinatown you can't call it Godfather Part Two, though. People are going to be confused. They're going to think it's the second half of the first movie, and they've already seen that. Why would they think that? Because up until this point, sequels were like they are today. They had, yeah, they had a, a different title. The way we've got Captain America this, and then Captain America that, and then I can't keep track of these movies because I'm not really into that genre of movies. But uh, you had. You had Gidget, and then Gidget goes Hawaiian, and then Gidget goes to Rome. I don't know which comes first. You have the Thin Man, who is the name, which is the name of the villain in that movie. William Powell and Myrna Loy deal with him. Asta deals with him as well. So they want a sequel. So it's called After the Thin Man. So you still get that recognition. (laughs) 
but it has nothing to do with the Thin Man. And then they would call like the song of the Thin Man, the Thin Man goes home, the Thin Man rides again or whatever. Rides again was like, you just add that, you throw that onto the title. But Coppola so, wanted it called part two because he envisioned if I'm gonna do a sequel, it's going to be a real like continuation of the story so that you can watch them together as one big story. And the studio eventually bowed. And that is why from the 70s up through what the mid 2000s, we had numbers in the titles of movies. Like all the Rocky movies, yeah. up until Rocky Balboa when they flipped the script. <laughs> so this has to be, this is the first American movie with a number in the title. First, yeah. as a Yes, you're right, because Coppola did point out when they told him people are going to think it's the second half of the first movie. He said, but what about Ivan the Terrible Part 1 and Ivan the Terrible Part 2? And they said, well, that's a foreign movie. And you know, it may, this helped me learn Roman numerals as a child. because I need to know, like, what does Rocky V mean? Oh, that means Rocky V. I don't want to watch Rocky V. So that's it's good to know. <laughs> Roman numeral system. So since Coppola got to make this without studio control he had a much better time during the production than he did on godfather one because he wasn't uh battling against any any suits any executives all the modern stuff he and mario puzo came up with all the stuff with robert de niro as young Vito was in the book of godfather was in the godfather book and they just expanded that and uh, also, of course, we talked about this a bit in the last episode. This is also how he was able to get the conversation made. Because he was like, I'll make your godfather too. But you got to make this other more personal thing that I've been trying to make for years. And that's part of the deal. And because the first godfather made so much money, they just kept uh, going to what he wanted. <laughs> going to what he wanted. And I guess he originally even didn't want to make this movie so much that he was, want, he wanted, he was willing to pass it to his pal Martin Scorsese. And was like, you know what? How about my pal Marty makes this? And studio was like, absolutely not. He does not make the type of gangster movie we are looking for. We want you. You have to do it. It has to be you. And then, of course, he had all these demands. And all his demands were met. So more power to him. He's, this is definitely like him at the height of, of his Hollywood power. So we got to see with the conversation, Coppola make a personal film like he always wanted to make full-on with no interference and now with godfather 2 we get to see him make a big studio movie with no interference this is all him on his own i guess one point of entry for us to delve into this movie and unpack it is coppola had an idea that he wanted to make a movie about a father and son at the same age in their different eras. And you would see the differences between father and son or the similarities between father and son. But he didn't really have a story to go with that. That's just something he wanted to do. And he imagined it more like the rain people or the conversation. But then he applied that to Godfather 2. If I'm gonna do his big studio movie, then I'm gonna do it my way. And that's really the young Vito scenes are really what make the godfather part two i can't imagine just the young michael scenes all together with no without the flashbacks 
And it makes it all the more, I think it just makes it all the more powerful when shit gets bad between the family in the 50s. When you see them as like little kids and like the dad cares for them, them kind of as this little family. And then just knowing how, how things are going to be so bad between everybody in the future. And, and also just kind of the contrast of like, because you, you got a little bit of this in the first Godfather movie with the first half with Marlon Brando kind of being in charge and then switching towards the end of Pacino. But like in this one, you really get how like Vito really enjoyed being the Godfather. It seemed like he had a good time and was really well liked and really made it work and really had that family, that balance figured out well. Al Pacino, Michael does not seem to enjoy doing it at all. It seems to make him just miserable. Like he, uh, like at the very beginning of the movie, of this movie, when he's having these meetings at his communion, he doesn't even have any fun. He doesn't seem to be in like it. He just seems like he's like, it's, it's basically an extension of the last scene from the first movie when he's very serious in the room and the door shuts and he's now the Godfather. Like he is just sort of like cold and tough. And you just see this emotional weight on his face the entire time. Like he is not smiling or laughing in this movie whatsoever. <laughs> but Vito was able to kind of enjoy his life, it seemed like. Even yeah. though he had the same amount of responsibility, it seems like Michael got his role in his family and sort of maybe even regrets it in a way. And I think there's a, isn't there a part in part two where he asks, I forget who, where he's just like, how do you, I think it's his mom, maybe, where he's like, how does, you remember this scene, or just the scene where about, like, how do I? Yeah, he asks his mom about, like, what his, how did his dad do it, like, be strong for his family and, and keep them together, and his mom thinks that he's just upset about the, uh, the miscarriage, mm-hmm. the, you know, alleged miscarriage that Kay had. But he's, you know, really talking about how to, like, I'm trying to be strong and do all this stuff for my family, but it's destroying my, it's destroying my family and driving everyone away from me because he's doing it all from a very selfish place. Like at the the first communion party scene, which you're right, is the most elaborate first communion, my first communion party was nothing like that. (laughs) I don't even remember having one. I think I just did it and that was and it was done. I was like, okay. <laughs> I I went to Catholic school, so I think the school then threw a party in the school cafeteria afterwards for all the kids involved. Yeah, my I, my Catholic school also did the same thing. So I remember that, but it definitely still wasn't on the level. Like we didn't have a live band. We didn't have everyone I know show up. I wasn't given any gifts, I don't think. Certainly not from any senators. Definitely not. <laughs> I want to. I want to do over. I want a second communion. Second. There's lots of scenes. There's lots of scenes in this movie that parallel the first movie, as you would maybe expect in a sequel about the next generation. And then there's also scenes that parallel the flashback scenes of young Vito. But first, I'm going to talk about the first communion party scene, mirroring the wedding scene in the first Godfather where it's this happy occasion and it's filled with family and friends and everyone is having a great time. There's dancing and food and a live band and people have come to ask favors of the Godfather. And it's one of those things, if you actually watch the movie, the favors he's asked 
are my daughter is in love with this guy that's about to be deported can you keep him in the country my daughter was beaten and raped by these guys can you take care of these guys and hurt them or to his actual godson i want the part in this movie but the studio head won't let me have the part because there's like beef between us and they're like I mean, they're like little little favors really in the scheme of things you think you know the the big mafia don in his dark room behind his desk he's like oh your daughter's in love with this baker who's about to be deported don't worry i'll use my connections with this congressman and i'll keep him in the country and michael is dealing with a lot more like business oriented stuff like he deals with hyman roth's right hand man with uncle jr about getting that deal set up. He deals with this corrupt senator and no one's asking him for favors. They're all like working out deals with him or the senator like demands money from him and then insults him personally and insults his ethnicity. It's like the mafia got too much power at this point. It's like when a company is no longer your local restaurant and has become a chain and now things have changed and now you have to be more business oriented and now like the stakes are higher and this is what's going on with the mob is like they are now like making big money in the world and now they have to deal with u.s senators and, <laughs> and like it's just like it's, it's it's messier now it's it's not just this little intimate taking care of your friends and your family it's now this much or the people in your neighborhood it's like almost like a global corporation sort of sort of thing going on here Maybe the biggest thing to let us know that this next generation, things are colder, they're more business-like, and it's set up for this stark existential fall is Frankie Pentangeli, Frankie Five Angels. He's old school. He shows up and he kind of talks like this. Uh, you know, it's like I'm uh, a constant strain, but I also can't stop talking. And he's like, hey, this guy comes up to me with some stuff on the Ritz cracker and says, can of peas. I'm like, can of peas? I know what a can of peas is. Like, he can't find the Italian food. He complains to Fredo, like, there's no Italian food. The band's not playing Italian music. And he tries to get the band to play an Italian music. Like, it goes like this, like, and the band ends up playing Pop Goes the Weasel. It's funny, but also really sad. And maybe, uh, maybe like Italian racists, but is this big way, like that guy in, you know, in the world of the Godfather probably was at the wedding, you know, and we just never met him. And now here's the, a big party with, for the child of the mafia boss. And it's totally different. He doesn't, recognize anything of it it's not remotely like what he was used to like what we saw before it's all a lot colder and darker and unwelcoming and that is really all of the the pre- i'm gonna say present day throughout this whole podcast but i mean 1958 throughout all of the present day scenes there's like no joy or like promise of joy in the first godfather Things get bad, but you are watching the family. You're watching Sonny and Michael and Tom Hagen like work their way, but like work the family's way back into power. 
And you uh, don't really feel like that is a, even a possibility in no, the present day scenes. Man, it's like watching them turn into McDonald's or something in this movie. It's just sort of like, ah, uh, this doesn't mean anything to anyone anymore. You just you just want to make up, you just want to make money, and you just like there's no, like you're willing to lose your wife and like your brother and all these things, which is some garbage. Like, and, and there's also that great part at the beginning where his sister Connie Talia Shire shows up with like this mink coat, like like jewel, like diamond necklace. And she, her boyfriend is just like, is played by Troy Donahue. So he's like this total like white ass, like blonde haired guy. And it's just like, you're like, you're, it's, it just, it's like, she's not the same character she was in the first movie. And she's just gonna, like, almost feels like you've sold out. Like you're, you're like, you just, you just want to live this ritzy life and you want to just like be with this dopey guy. And uh, it's just, it's just so sad. <laughs> there's a lot of great character changes in this movie from characters that we remember as being big from the first movie but really they weren't like Kay is not a big part of the first movie and Fredo is not a big part of the first movie and they're really not even well Fredo is is bigger but Kay doesn't really have I feel like a lot of scenes but her scenes are bigger so she gets to make a bigger impact on the audience and the same for for connie her change it's like she comes on the screen and yeah she's got the coat and the jewels and it's being really like frivolous and it's interesting of course because in the first movie she's very like meek and just sort of ex accepting of whatever comes her way my husband's abusive okay that's just how it is and you can see how if she realized okay like i'm basically going to be what like a mafia princess my brother's yeah. big mafia boss then i'm just gonna live it up i'm gonna spend all this money i'm gonna buy the, the clothes i'm gonna marry this handsome guy who's just after my money but who cares i'm just gonna live it up and that's like her way of rebellion against michael is i'm not gonna be the demure obedient uh sicilian woman that uh, that she was in the first movie, and, uh, and Fredo shows up with his like hot uh, fiance, wife. Not his wife yet, right? It's like his fiance. I think it's and, his wife. It's his wife, and at first you're like, oh, good for you, Fredo. But then she turns out to be like this total, just like she's just drunk who has no interest in him. She's just dancing with other men. And yeah, she's they, dancing grossly with another dude, like like Michael's like. She needs to leave now, and Fredo's just like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry." Like, so he showed up kind of as a hot shot, and the facade quickly drops. So, Godfather Two introduces a lot of new characters, but it also gives bigger stage for characters from the first movie to shine through, like Talia Shire as Connie, who has not many scenes in the movie, but they're all like memorable. That first scene at the party and then she comes back at the end uh, when their mother dies and she's I guess just got tired of that guy and decided that she wants to come back and she realizes that Kay has left Michael their mother has died Michael's all alone so she asks Michael let me take care of you also can you forgive Fredo it's a really moving scene and Connie means everything that she's saying and it's just it's a really good great performance from Talia Shire and then Michael very coldly 
<laughs> goes out into the funeral parlor and hugs Fredo, and then over Fredo's shoulder nods to his uh, henchmen, we're still going to kill him. <laughs> what an asshole. <laughs> and Fredo's even more sad in this one. Like, in the first movie, he's sad and pathetic, because, like, he's around when, like, you know, Vito gets shot and doesn't do anything about it. But in this one, he has that great breakdown where he's just like, I'm your older brother, but you're taking care of me. Like, like he's being treated like the little baby puppy dog, you know? He's the one who's not being trusted with things. He's the one who's just being asked to just throw the party, just entertain these people. That's like, we're, we're, we're willing to give you that much uh, you know, power, and that's it. And, it, and, his, and John Cazell, his performance is so good. He's so, he's so believable and just so... I think he's the best actor in this movie. Like, I think he's so great. Like, he's just so believably sad and pathetic and just sort of like, you don't, it's crazy because like he tries to kill his brother, but you don't hate him. Like you don't end up being like, oh, I can't wait for, you don't want him to die. It's really depressing. But I, I, I don't think he knew. I believe him when he says he didn't know that uh, it was going to end up being a hit on Michael. But, but then who drew those curtains? Because like, why would those curtains be open? Because clearly they're not normally open because Kay is like, why are the curtains open? Who else could have opened it? Hmm. I think he did know. I think he knew. Because why else would the curtains be open? Who else at the communion that was there would have been there to open the curtains other than him? That's a detail I have never thought of. That really changes because huh, I always thought for like Fredo is sweet and stupid. He made a deal with Dom Dominic Uncle Junior. I don't want to butcher his last name, so I'm just gonna call him Uncle Junior. With Uncle Simon <laughs> Roth. They promised him like, well, you'd help us work with Michael with this and we'll, you know, cut you in on something and you know, you'll get a piece of something on your own and it won't be from your brother. You'll have earned it on your own. But yeah, if the curtains being open were so that the hitmen could see where Michael was in his bedroom. And yeah, huh. Well, why else would they be open? And they're not normally open because like, why would Kay say anything? Why would she say open them? Why are the curtains open? Because they're not supposed to be open because somebody opened them with Fredo. And when that scene, when he gets that phone call, and he's just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, like, like, to me, that's more like him just freaking out because they didn't succeed. They didn't kill him. And he uh, is like, and because he's kind of been, because they call him while he's in bed with his wife. And I think he's just trying to pretend like, oh, I don't know what this is, prank caller, prank caller. You know, he doesn't know. He doesn't know what's going on. He wants to pretend he doesn't know, but I think he must have known. You know? Mm -hmm. I feel like he definitely is 100% guilty because he opened the and why else would you do that unless to have him get killed? Have your brother get killed? Because the hitmen who they established... Okay, we're getting into really minutia that I wasn't expecting to. But yeah, the, the hitmen who they establish after they kill, they're like, oh, these guys, they're from New York. You know, We don't know these guys. That means that these guys who came in who don't know this place would have had to snoop around, find Michael's bedroom, open and make sure that the curtains are open yeah. and then sneak out and, you know, get into their positions and hide out. They were told where his bedroom was and they were told the curtains will be open. That's my theory. And Fredo uh -huh. is the one who told them this and who did it. It has to be. Who else could it be? That's an interesting theory. 
I have, nothing changes the fact that John Cazale is great after, well, I'm maybe tied with Robert De Niro, the best thing about this movie. And what's cool about Robert De Niro is he speaks very little English in this movie. It's mostly all in Italian. Maybe he says like five words in English. And he's so cool in this movie. He is so great. I mean, he always is. Most of the time, or back then, at least. And this is sort of like the big, the beginning of him becoming this big, becoming a part of, like, I feel like all this, like, he was in, you know, like, those early De Palma movies, Greetings and Hi, Mom. And he was in Mean Streets, but Mean Streets was sort of like when he really broke, in a way. And of course, and then this is sort of like, even more, like, more, like, after this, like, people were definitely more aware of him. But uh, he is so good. Like, he... He's just like, he's, you really see the change in the character in the movie. And it's totally believable when you have him kind of being this more innocent at the beginning and then becoming the godfather. And especially like taking on a role that was already in his Oscar winning iconic role like two years earlier with Marlon Brando. And then you have to fill in those shoes and play this person. And he, yeah, he does eventually kind of start talking like, Marlon Brando did, you know, and starts doing that little, that does the voice, and he wears the fake teeth and stuff, when he, especially the scene, that definitely kicks in, like, when he goes back to Sicily to kill the person, to kill the guy who killed his family, but, like, but he does make the role his own, like, you don't, you know, it's not just an impersonation of Marlon Brando, or... Not very, at all. Yeah, that really is his own character, and... I mean, now it's really difficult to think of, oh, the guy, oh yeah, that the, the crazy guy from Mean Streets. Yeah, I know. What's his name? I don't know, because he's been in like three movies. <laughs> you know, like, oh, Robert De Niro is going to take on this part that was, you know, famously, iconically played by Brando. Like, okay, yeah, well, Robert De Niro is one of the greatest actors ever. So yeah, he could do that. But he was not yet Robert De Niro. <laughs> I think like it's this guy that most of America probably hadn't heard of, even with his breakthrough performance in Mean Streets. Yeah. Maybe the name sounded familiar. His approach to the character was yeah, the, the Brando character, because he's Brando, he moves these certain ways, he says things a certain way, and De Niro wanted to unpack, like, well, where does that come from? Not in a very literal prequel kind of way like you would get now. And the scene where he's going to go deal with the bad mafia boss, Don Finucci. He's the perfect villain in this movie. He's big. He wears a white suit with a coat over his suit, <laughs> which is very, like, difficult. I tried doing that once. Just, you know, just like, yeah, I'm a cool guy. I'm going to wear my overcoat over my jacket, but without my arms through it. It was so difficult. You can barely move because as soon as you move, your overcoat falls off. So this is a guy that's wearing his overcoat over his fine white suit and his fine white hat and his mustache, doing that because he's telling everyone, I don't have to move. You're going to come to me. You're going to bring me things because if you don't, I'm going to cut up this woman with a knife. De Niro says to young Clemenza and Tessio, he's asking for this much, I'm only going to offer him 100. And it's all in Sicilian, and then in English he says, I make him an offer he don't refuse. <laughs> and it's cool, but there's no, it's not done in a way where you see Vito Corleone put together the words, and then the world shines and the screen glows like it would be done in a prequel today, where it's like, oh, 
but who built C-3PO? <laughs> we have to know. You're like, oh, but how did Han Solo get his name? It doesn't matter. It's his name. Anyway, so these little, the, the origin stories with, with Vito and his sayings and his mannerisms, they are underplayed to a very, very affecting degree. I'll say, I'll go ahead and admit this, that watching Godfather 2 in my, uh, th through the power of self-delusion, that's young Vito is how I imagined what I looked like in college. <laughs> not, not when he's the Don, but before when he's got his newsboy cap, he's got this brown coat on and I always wore a brown coat and he's just very quiet and like, yeah, I'm, I'm talking now, but uh, it doesn't really sound like I'm talking because I'm shy. I don't say a lot. I'm like, yeah, that's me. I was like, that, that, that's how I am. I think the stuff, all the young Vito scenes are the best things about Godfather 2. Would uh, you agree, disagree? I, I, I agree. Like, I think that is the best, that is the best stuff. Like, I really like all the Cuba stuff as well. Like, I think that stuff's really well done and really great. But, like, the, all the scene, like, I could watch a whole movie of just Young Vito in New York. I don't care how brown it is. I'll watch, I'll watch it a thousand times. This is a very brown movie in the past. A lot of browns. And I feel Gordon Willis, cinematographer on this one, correct? Yep, yet again. And I feel he went even darker than the first movie in terms of, like, the color palette. It's like there are scenes in rooms... Where it's not just people in shadows, it's straight up silhouette, where you can't see any details at all. There's this amazing scene where it's, I think it's Michael talking to Fredo, and you can see outside the window, you can see like the snowy landscape outside the window, and it's really bright, but inside the room, super duper dark. <laughs> like they really like, they went way in on the dark on this one, being like, people are going to sit through this movie, we're going to go extra dark, we're not going to bring any lights today. <laughs> Yeah, Gordon Willis had the nickname Prince of Darkness for how, <laughs> how dark he would shoot his movies. When I watched the first movie, I watched it during the day and I closed all the curtains. I had to close all the curtains and turn off all the lights in my house so I could see as much as I you know, was able to see. I did the same for Godfather 2 and I still couldn't see and I couldn't tell. <laughs> I had to get like close to the TV. Like, is it is it my setup or is it actually, am I supposed to not see the faces of the actors involved? It, it fits the movie perfectly, but <laughs> it, is, it is peculiar. And the look of the young Vito scenes, part of what makes it so emotionally affecting is that it really looks like these old yellowed sepia tone photographs came to life and they're moving and there's color in there but yeah. it's really it's not really uh vibrant it doesn't really shine through it all still looks very yellow and old and it's like you looked at this photograph and this is what you're imagining in your head but it's not forced it doesn't it doesn't draw attention to itself which is nice it's like it's just a part of it, it gives you a feeling but it's not like we're making a Grand House movie. We're going to make it all scratchy looking. It's not like that kind of cinematography. It really just feels organic. And it just feels like you're just like in the past, like watching these things, like just kind of in your memory of like, I guess the past looked like this, you know, like it's just, it was, it's so well done. And it's, it's a shame because he didn't really, Gordon Wills didn't work with Coppola again until Godfather 3. 
too bad because like he's really good and of course he went on to be like the great Woody Allen cinematographer and he did he did uh, of course Manhattan which is arguably one of the best looking movies of all time and uh, and he did Purple Rose of Cairo and uh, Zelig but like it's 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 a shame they didn't work a couple again but like they, they, I love how dark it is it's so bold it's just so like this must have been at this time the darkest movie ever made intentionally like I'm sure there was maybe some independent thing where they didn't do a good job <laughs> this came out dark. But this, like, to make this scene that dark, I feel like you could only do that having total creative control over your movie. Because, like, the movie has dark part, like, the beginning of The Godfather has that, for sure. But, like, this movie has a lot, and it's even darker. <laughs> and I can see producers, like, studio heads throwing a fit, being like, I can't see anything! What's going on? In a way, so Godfather 2 for Coppola was a lot like, a lot like, like Christopher Nolan doing... The Dark Knight or The Dark Knight Rises. Well, you made you know the biggest movie. It, it, audiences love it. Critics love it. We don't understand it. So you do whatever you want for for the third one, or for the second one, or whatever. So Coppola was able to do this flashbacks and flash forward structure, and the movie was able to look so dark and be dark thematically. It's oh, it, that's an that's a good trend that like I think so many of the great Hollywood movies are from that. Like that's how you get like your Empire Strikes Back. It's like the first movie is so good it makes so much money. It's okay to have the second one be really dark. That's how you get Batman Returns. Speaking of Batman, like Batman Returns is so personal for Tim Burton and so weirder and so darker stylistically and emotionally. <laughs> Gremlins too. <laughs> The list goes on and on. Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom is the grossest, darkest of all the Indiana Jones movies. It's like you have your big hit and it gives you sort of total freedom because the studio is like, well, you gave us a billion dollars. So you can, like the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie is totally insane. And it can only exist because the first one made so much money. It's like, if you can, if you can figure out a way to make a, a, a big hit, then you can make your second one all the more crazy and personal if they trust you, which is great. It's great when it happens. It rarely happens. But when it does, like here with Godfather 2, that's when you get into some, that, that's the kind of movies you wish Hollywood made all the time, where you just trust these people, you give them all this money to just do their thing, and they'll bring you back something you've never seen before. Because they put, they put their personal artistic vision into a, a big... Hollywood property and don't have any rules or restrictions. No one said, well, you have to have, and I, I don't mean to harp on Marvel movies so much, but no one told Coppola like, but you have to include these three characters from this other movie or this has to happen so it sets up the next movie. It's just, okay, yeah, do whatever you want. Our, we're not even thinking about a third one right now. We just wanna cash in and make a second one. So go ahead, like, don't kill Michael Corleone, please. But anything <laughs> shy of that. Like, okay, I'm going to make him so unlikable that no one's going to want to see him ever again. Which maybe is why is some of the problems we have with Godfather 3. That's a podcast for another day. But yeah, it is. I think it's weird. When I first saw this movie, I didn't get why, why people liked it more than the first one. I didn't really get why it was so loved because nobody's really likable in this movie like you really because in the first movie you really like 
all of them. Like you like all of them. Like you love James Caan and you love Al Pacino and you love and you love uh, Marlon Brando and you think you want to see them succeed and you you want to follow their family to great success. And uh, and in this one, you just don't like any of these people at all. They're the because they're just making terrible life decisions and, it's, they, and they aren't even enjoying any aspect of their life. So it's a very, it's a very just like kind of depressing movie and it's longer than the first one. So you're watching this depressing 200 minute movie. <laughs> it's way longer. Like the first one doesn't have an intermission and it runs like two hours, 50 minutes or 2.55. This one is a full three hours and 21 22 minutes it has an intermission but on the dvd the intermission is just like you know five seconds um the dvd i had i could put in another dvd whoa the one i have is like you watch it then the intermission happens and it says okay you gotta put in it's like it was like a laser disc i had to get up i had to actually stand up get off my couch and put another disc in Oh, that's the first DVD. The first time I watched the Godfather movies, I must have watched those DVDs because I remember part two came on two, on two discs. So I didn't yep. even think about how long it was. I just knew this is the only thing I'm doing today. Yeah, so Godfather 1, you can talk about from any number of points thematically or filmmaking or from performances, but I feel like Godfather 2... You can mostly talk about themes in the context of these characters and how the characters grow. It's really difficult to talk about Godfather 2 as a standalone movie. Like I thought, I'm going to try to watch this without thinking about Godfather 1, without thinking about those versions of the characters. I'm just going to watch Godfather Part 2. But you can't. You can't. It, it, all, it works so much because you remember what they were like in the first and we already talked about this, like the way everyone's changed. I mean, I can't imagine just watching this without seeing the first one and what that would be like. <laughs> so in a way, these are, this is like the Marvel movies that you, you like to just hate on, AJ. You have to watch every Marvel movie in order to understand what the hell's going on. <laughs> you have to watch all 40,000 of them. This one you have to see. That's why it's called Godfather Part 2. This isn't another Godfather or Godfather, here we go again. It's Part 2 because it really is a continuation of the first one. You have to watch the first one to get this one. You just have to. You can't not. You just be, you just, you would just watch this movie and be like, what is going on? I don't care. Like, why are these people this way? Like, who are these terrible people? Like, you need that juxtaposition of what happens in the first one. Like, why would you care about young Vito? doing anything if you don't know who he is. So with young Vito, you're seeing the rise of the father. And with Michael, you're seeing the fall of the son and of the family, everything the father built. But you're also seeing, in a way, even though he kills people, murders, straight up murders people, Vito rises morally. And like Michael, in, like he orders people killed. He doesn't do it himself. And it's just a further descent like young Vito when he first learns that there's this mafia chief Don Finucci he asks his friend why would he do that to his fellow Italians like we should all be helping each other and this guy is taking from us he's not helping us he loses his job because of this mafia guy and then the mafia guy wants to cut in on the illegal work 
that him and young Clemenza and young Tessio are doing. He takes the cold route of, well, why don't we just kill this guy? So then there's that beautiful San Gennaro sequence, which is really the highlight of the movie. The best. The next time we flash back to him, he's wearing a nice suit and he's buying some groceries, some fruit from a street vendor. And the vendor says like, eh, no charge, but very graciously. And Vito says, okay, but you did a favor for me. Next, anytime I can do a favor for you, you let me know. And that's how Vito Corleone works. That's how the good king works. He's operating out of friendship. And this is how he uses his mafia power. He's not trying to increase his own personal wealth, though, of course, that just happens, you know. He's helping his community, and people are coming to him for favors, and he's acting out of friendship. Now, like, even with the landlord, he doesn't go to beat him up. He's just like, here, here's money. Just let this lady stay here. What's the big problem? And even when the guy's like, no. He just waits patiently for the guy to come back and be like, okay, you're right. We'll, we'll let the lady live. Like, you know, there was, there was no violence that's been even threatened in that situation. It so endears the audience to Vito, who we've seen murder a guy who is a criminal and you know the head of organized crime now. But he's helping this woman not get a better home. Just stay in her home. Just not be evicted. And then flash forward to young Michael or to adult Michael trying to do this casino deal or to, you know, beating his wife after she tells him she actually had an abortion. And you're like, no, this is not what your father would have done. This is not what a good king does. There was, we, we're seeing the, good, the rise of a good king and the reign of a bad king. He doesn't fall, like he doesn't lose his power, but he loses everything that would mean anything to anyone with, uh, with, uh, with a warm heart. Yeah, no, it's good. It kind of reminds me in a way of some of the uh, Shakespeare plays about uh, the kings, where you have, you have your good ones, and then you have your Richard Thirds, and, you know, they can't all be great. And, and Al Pacino's definitely kind of more the not great one. And we didn't talk about it when I did my rambling uh, synopsis, but that I love the scene at the end that's the flashback of the whole family back together. And it's Vito's birthday. Is that right? I think it's his birthday. And you see, it's like, it's all your friends back from the first movie. Like, even Abe Vigoda's there. And, and James Kahn and all the families around the table, and they're all waiting. And Michael talks about he's going off to war, and Sonny is upset by this idea. And Fredo's the only one. He's the only one who's like, hey, yeah, congratulations. Good job. Like, I'm pretty, this, this is great. This is great. And then they all leave to go meet their dad. And only Michael's just kind of sitting there all around, just kind of sad as just sort of a, a precursor to, his, to the fate of him being the lonely, lonely guy at the top. Um, it's such a great scene. It's such a great moment to have in the movie. And it's the scene you didn't know you were waiting for. And everyone reacts to Michael's news of him joining the Marines the way you expect their characters to act. Like, Sonny is very angry about it that's not what dad would do why are you gonna risk your neck for you know other people fredo is very loving he's very encouraging he tries to shake michael's hand and sunny like throws their hands apart and tom hagan is like you know your father and i had big plans for you he's thinking of it from like a business point of view connie 
is there, she's been introduced to Sonny's friend, Carlo. And he told both of them like, well, why don't you go decorate the cake and do that over there while we talk about stuff? Cause you're going to now be, you're taken care of, but you're not part of the business family. So just go over there. And Tessio, it's great that Abe Vigoda's Tessio shows up cause this is a guy that Michael kills at the end of the first one. And he's there, he's, you know, bringing the cake. It's this wonderful scene to see everyone there as an actual family. And it's this stark reminder. The whole reason, allegedly, you do this whole mafia thing is to take care of your family, to take care of your wife and your kids and your relatives. But now Michael has gotten rid of all these people. I mean, Sonny, you know, died in the Mafia War. He killed Tessio. He killed Fredo. He killed Carlo. Connie, you know, was estranged from him, but then came back at the end when she realized Michael had no one else to take care of him. And Tom Hagen, who was their, you know, surrogate adopted brother, because Sonny thought of him as a brother, and so did Fredo, but not Michael, the, you know, the cold, intelligent one. Even though Tom Hagen is still there with him at the end, he's basically alienated him and pushed him away so then tom knows oh no michael's never thought of me as a as a brother um when you say i felt this watching this that this really feels like an hbo show and i don't just mean that because it's about the mafia and we think and the sopranos but like it's just so layered and there's so much stuff going on and the way it jumps in time and location it feels like you're watching a whole season of a tv show in one movie and the yeah. way the way that smart TV is now, the way that it like plays like a novel or it feels like a book. Like when you watch The Wire or Six Feet Under or The Sopranos or even Breaking Bad or, you know, anything nowadays, like they, they kind of play like this movie where you have this rich tapestry with all these characters and you get to watch them kind of grow and succeed and fail. And it just feels so big and there's just so much symbolism and and all these themes and it just feel it feels like you're reading a, a 500 page book but this movie succeeds in 200 minutes what shows now do in like 12 hours or whatever but like it feels very like this is hbo like if if this was like a show if this didn't exist and he just took it from time and no one knew it was and put it out now and just expanded the scenes this would be like a hit hbo show not just because of the mob because it's Sopranos, but i really feel like the way it's written it's like this is smart this is like a movie for grown-ups that's smart. And it's and it's just so just rich and dense. And I I love it so much. But you're totally right. You're totally right. This is structurally more like a novel, which is how a lot of long-form TV plays this way. Yeah. <laughs> I could totally imagine like what season two is actually gonna be just a flashback of young Vito. And all that would be season two or something. Or that would be like every other episode in a season. I don't support it at all, but this could totally work as a TV show now. You could totally bring all Godfather 1 and 2, bring in some writers to flesh it out and, and make it longer and have it be like a good three, four season TV show, you know? Like you can have season one end with Vito getting shot. And that's the end of season one. You're like, oh shit. And then season two picks up from there. Like you could totally see it play out. Like, I mean, it makes sense that this is considered with the first movie, two of the great movies of all time. You know, like they, they, this movie, even, even though this is a part two, 
this often makes the top 10 list of when people list the best movies of all time. This movie is right up there. And these are, these are movies that are very studied and very talked about. And it, it makes sense that uh, the people that write really good television these days, like must have watched this movie a lot. And it's like, it's just a good lesson in how to do really good, a really good character study on a, on a different, a bunch of characters at once. Like you're getting a good character study of Vito, you're getting a good character study of Michael, you're getting little character studies of Kay and Fredo and like all these people. And it's just so well balanced and so well, it's so smart. For a movie made by a guy who didn't want to make this movie, he did a really good job. <laughs> like he did a good job. Like if, if this is Coppola phoning it in, you know, he's very good at what he does. Like if this is the movie that he was forced to do, man, he really delivered on it, you know? I wrote, this is a curious film. <laughs> but it really is. You wouldn't expect any sequel, even now, to be like this, even if a sequel to a Marvel movie or whatever had flashback origin scenes. I mean, well, first of all, nowadays, that would be its own, you know, Wolverine Origins movie or whatever, X-Men Origins. But you wouldn't expect those those scenes to be as big a part of the movie as the young Vito scenes are to Art to Godfather Part 2. And I was, when I was watching, I was thinking, like, do these scenes of young Vito really affect the the modern storyline? Like, they don't really, from a plot point of view. At the end of both of their stories, so young Vito goes back to Corleone, Sicily, to kill Don Ciccio, who murdered his whole family when he was a child. And he's so old and feeble, does this guy really have to die? And Michael killing Hyman Roth at the end of the movie or ordering Hyman Roth killed, it's well established that this guy is super old and has like a terminal heart condition and is going to die in like six months. So does Michael really need to kill this guy? The guy's just going to... And as soon as he arrives back in America, he's arrested by federal agents. So he's going to spend his last six months in a federal prison and then just die. But Michael, like for the, like, you know, for the honor, or, you know, because of the principle, he has to have this guy die. Let's talk for a moment. Lee Strasberg is really good as Hyman Roth. And it's really special that he's in this movie. This is him coming out of retirement. And for those who don't know, he is really big in the acting world because he started the act or he did the actor's studio in the fifties. And he was like sort of the big guy in America, one of the people pushing the method, method acting. So he helped kind of uh, work with uh, like Dustin Hoffman and James Dean. And he was like the big method acting, one of the big method acting guys. So to have him in this movie with De Niro and a sequel to the movie with Marlon Brando and Pacino and all these great, because like method acting really, that was sort of this generation of actors is the method acting. Like you, like you started with like Brando and, uh, and you work your way into these sort of like Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, like these method actors of the time and be able to share the screen with Lee Strasberg, like for Pacino 
in particular that was very special and very exciting. And he is great in this movie. He's, he is really old and feeble, but he has a lot of power in the scenes he's in. He really, there's like, you are watching him. His character is based on Meyer Lansky, the great Jewish gangster Meyer Lansky. And he's just, he's so good in this movie. Like for a guy who, all the scenes are either him laying in bed or sitting in a chair, but he has the power to it. Like there's a power to it. You know, like there's something about that character that like, maybe he can have the upper hand here. Maybe he can take out uh, Michael and his family. I don't know. Because he's really cool the whole time. You never see him really lose it. Like he just sort of is like, doing his thing and we find that it's fun that we find that he's doing it all because of Mo Green being killed in the first movie is why he's fucking all this up because he had a lot of respect for Mo Green the character who was working at the casino in part one that the family had killed and because of that he's just like doing this slow twist on the Corleone family to kind of like bring him down um and his and his acting is great he's really good perfect as that character where you're frustrated by him because he's so old and he's not you're like yes he's either laying down or he's reclining or he's got his shirt open just because he's like like i'm old and like i can't have stand to have my shirt buttoned anymore this guy should be easy to take care of but wait he's not he's super hard to kill and he's ruining my whole life it's so fucking frustrating just go away hyman roth I guess the reason Michael insists that Hyman Roth be executed is because he says uh, Hyman Roth has been dying of the same heart attack for the last 20 years. So, I mean, he could theoretically go on living, probably not from the way we've seen him being like carted around by Cuban nurses and doctors, but then he comes back and thwarts Michael just by not dying. Yeah, Lee Strasberg, I mean, it's not really a stunt to get him in the movie. I guess in a way it was, and it was great. Um, he ended up getting a support Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination. He also got, I can't remember exactly, but some organization gave him Best Newcomer Award. <laughs> Give that to a 75-year-old man. Yeah, since he had only acted in like one other movie before. You can be a newcomer in be a late newcomer. Let's talk about, so this is sort of the movie that was mythical for a while of being the only movie that had De Niro and Pacino in it. And it's funny because they were like at the time were considered the two great actors of their era. And they were in this one movie, but they didn't share a scene. <laughs> they didn't and even share a storyline. Not even a storyline other than that one's the dad, one's the son. And for a long time, it was sort of this like, oh man, they're in this movie, but that's, this is all we get until Heat in 1995. That was the first movie to like finally bring them together. But then what's funny is even in that movie, they mostly aren't in scenes together. It's mostly like Pacino trying to chase or figure out what De Niro's doing. And they have their little scene of like coffee together. And then the rest of the movie's them again separated until the very end at the airport that they never actually were like on set at the same time like really? even in, in the coffee thing they were just like we're shooting separately that's what i i heard i don't know because i i mean i haven't delved into michael mann's heat but what i heard was that all their scenes give them in the coffee shop it's like over the shoulder, over the shoulder, over the shoulder. There's no master shot of the two of them sitting across from each other. 
so the the thing with that movie was yeah they're like together in the same movie but they never actually acted against each other them play off each other as actors? I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's true. It may have just been, I mean, if that is true, it was probably just because of their schedules, you know. <laughs> so then, so then that's like a little bit of a tease. And then we finally, finally, we get them together in the, in the, the not as celebrated movie, Righteous Kill <laughs> from 2008. We finally get De Niro and Pacino together in a movie, and it's whatever that movie is. I've never seen that movie. I don't know anyone who's ever seen that movie. Oh, hello. <laughs> I've seen that movie. One of the very first things me and my wife <laughs> did together was we, we were just watching movies that she had laying around that she hadn't seen before, and she had the director John Avnet double feature of 88 Minutes and Righteous Kill. So we watched both of those and oh, what a mystery science theater time we had. Righteous Kill also has 50 Cent in it, you know, little Donnie Wahlberg in there, you know, is it star studded? Is it not good? Does it not live up to the hype of finally we get a movie where they're both in it together through the whole movie, not just five minutes, not just separated, but actually. It is so not good that of all the not good movies both of those guys have made, we've all forgotten about it. <laughs> yeah, it's all built upon a plot twist that's based upon, I mean, it's stupid. It's spoiler, Righteous Kill sucks. So I'm just gonna tell you what I remember of it now. Spoil it for me now. What, what is the um, It starts out with Robert De Niro talking into a camera and he says, my name is this guy. And I killed these people, and and here's my story. And then it flashes back to them as cops working together, and and Carla Gugino is maybe also in this movie. It turns out he's actually reading Al Pacino's conf- confession, and Al Pacino has been killing people because he was molested by a priest when he was a kid, and now that he's an adult, he's killing all the people that like didn't do anything about his molestation. But the whole twist is based upon the fact that at no point do these characters actually call each other by their full names. They call each other nicknames. So like Robert De Niro is Turk and uh, Al Pacino is like Rooster or something like that. And then at the end you find out their actual names. What? So De Niro, De Niro is actually reading the confession of Pacino. And it's supposed to be like a, a twist, but it's not. And everything has just been so not entertaining, not compelling, not in any way. And it's these guys, you know, Pacino at a certain point became this kind of actor who's just willing to show up in something and scream. And Robert De Niro's the guy who's willing to show up and kind of mumble and look at the ground. <laughs> finally get them in the irishman in 2019 together and we've talked about this movie on many of the couple of podcasts that is a great movie and they to get their their scenes together are so good like the scenes of pacino de niro and the irishman are brilliant are amazing like it's definitely one of the best movies in the last x amount of years and that we finally get with that movie we finally get them together being great actors in a great movie at the same time, <laughs> this took, you know, this took 
decade after decade to finally reach, like until they're old and one foot in the grave, we finally get, we finally get them. But they're so it. good in that movie oh, God, that yeah. I don't even think about like, oh my God, it's De Niro and Pacino in so many scenes together. I'm just caught up in it. I'm like almost like brought to tears in certain scenes. It's really obvious by now. I love that movie. Yeah, I think I think the last four episodes we've we've dropped the Irishman. Be safe. You want to watch some? You want to spend some time inside? Watch the Irishman. It's really long. It's like four hours long. I think it's longer than Godfather Two, maybe. It it and it's episodic. So if you have to stop it at a certain point, continue it. Works out. And it's so good, and it's like everything you want. And, and, and let's throw Joe Pesci in there, too. It's like everything you wanted to see a movie with those three guys in it together, and they all have scenes together. And it's, oh, I guess, I don't think Pesci has any scenes with Pacino. I don't think. No, he does. Does he? I think so, yeah. Okay. So to see those three, like the three, some of the three of the best actors, like, in a movie together, man, like that movie, like that's the movie, like the movie that people have been waiting for since Godfather 2 of like, why don't these guys do a movie together? Like actually do a movie together. We finally get it in the 21st, deep in the 21st century. That's a movie that like, just like Godfather 2 and Godfather 1, you know a movie's good when you sit through like a really long movie, like three, three and a half hours and what's this done? You're like, I could watch that again. I totally watch that again, like right now. Like this is let's just do it again. Let's just do let's it's like eating a it's like eating at a buffet and you've eaten the really good stuff and you're too full, but you're like, you know what? I'm gonna go back and have that, I'm gonna go have those mashed potatoes again because it's that good. I don't care how full I am. I'm gonna go back there. I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna eat it again. So this was the big Oscar movie of of nineteen seventy-four, ceremony yeah. twenty-five. And this is, this is your expertise, AJ, so I defer to you. I stupidly, a few episodes ago, assumed Godfather won, won Best Director. I was wrong! See, I don't know how to use Wikipedia, so I don't look these things up. I just go off of my instinct, and I just assumed that this was... That. But this movie did win Best Director, did win Best Picture. So it had the most nominations with 11. Chinatown also had 11 nominations. Godfather won six of its 11, which was the most of any movie that year. Chinatown win anything? Chinatown only won original screenplay. Robert Town, what an original screenplay. What, what else is in the category for original screenplay? Like, I love, I love, like we did this last episode. I love, like to me, this is 74. We're in the middle of like the best decade for movies ever. What were the other original movies, screenplays of 1974? Because, like, how can you beat Chinatown? But I'm assuming you're going to say something like, oh, that's a good one, too. So you have Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore by Robert uh, Getchell, The Conversation by Coppola, Day for Night by Truffaut, Suzanne Schiffman, and Jean-Louis Richard, or he's French, so maybe it's Richard, and Harry and Tonto by Paul Mazursky and Josh Greenfield. Can't argue with that. That's a great. That's a. If you just showed those movies to people, you'd be like, "Those are great. All great movies. All of them." Yeah. If um, it's one of the things like if Chinatown didn't win Best Picture or if it didn't win Best Original Screenplay, well, what did it lose to? Alice doesn't live here anymore. Oh, oh. Well, okay. The conversation. 
Oh, yeah, well, okay, that makes sense. Day for Night? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Harry and Tano? Yeah, no, that, that's a good, that's a good, really good character study. I'm assuming Godfather 2 won adapted screenplay? Yeah, you won adapted screenplay. So this is like the third time Coppola's won adapted screenplay. Because what were the other ones? We had Patton counted as adapted. Patton, Godfather, and now Godfather 2. That's crazy. But it's funny that this was adapted because considering the only part that was adapted were the flash, the prequel flashback scenes. Because the yeah. rest of it is completely original. So like 40, I'm guessing the De Niro stuff is maybe 40 minutes of this three and a half hour movie. It really doesn't feel like that much. And it, it surely isn't if, um, if we're able to watch the uh, Godfather saga on its own. I bet the De Niro stuff won't take up that long. Maybe an hour, maybe, maybe, not even. So I can understand De Niro's categorization as a supporting actor once I actually watch the movie again. I wonder if it was frustrating for Coppola and Putzel if uh, they got adapted screenplay when 75% of this movie is original content, not adapted. You know, like they made, like all the stuff in the 50s, all the stuff with the family that's not, the Vito flashback is original content that's not based on a book. They made that up out of their own heads. And going back to what we're talking about with sequels in in, in this next movie, it's like, it's amazing the fact that they never thought they'd make another one. They thought the Godfather one was, it's going to be it done. And the fact that they had all this amazing stuff to add out of nowhere. Like they didn't base this on a book. They just, they sat down and they came up with this whole great, other story with these characters on their on their own and it's so good like is it the is it the only sequel that they didn't know was going to be a sequel and it was that good and it was that rich and like if not better than the first like i can't think of it like there's movies where they break it up into a bunch of movies because i knew they were going to have a bunch of them like the lord of the rings movies or whatever but like i can't it's hard i'm trying to like rack my brain for like what's a sequel where they had to come back and they didn't think think that there was going to be another one and they came up with such gold like and then something so different than the first and so good like the only others i can think of is maybe like the mad max sequels like road warrior and fury road like clearly those movies weren't thought of when they made the first one we already talked about empire strikes back like that movie i don't think was in george lucas's mind when he made the first or maybe it was i don't know terminator 2 terminator 2 is like a movie that i'm sure james cameron didn't know he was going to make and man, is that movie so much better than the first one and so much richer. I don't know. Like, that's it. Like, it's like the fact that they were like, oh, I guess we got to make a part two. And then they hammered this out is amazing. And how sad is it that you can't get an original screenplay nomination for thinking of such amazing stuff out of the blue? It's adapted screenplay, and then it'll be based on characters from this novel or from this first movie. But the actual, like, what those characters do is totally, yeah, is totally original. Can a sequel get original screenplay if it's characters from a movie that was already thought of? Like, can that No, then it'll be based on characters from, like, Linklater has received adapted screenplay nominations for Before Sunset because it was based on characters he created for the first movie. Also, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi got credit for uh, adapting that Do you agree with that? I think that's kind of stupid. 
Like if I wrote a story about Sherlock Holmes and it was the greatest movie ever made in 2021 and I just used that character, but through my own mind, I thought of a whole new plot and a whole new character arc. I should get original screenplay. Like, okay, granted, I didn't think of the character of Sherlock Holmes, but that's a load of bullshit. Cause like adapted screenplay, like it's, it's equally hard to write adapted screenplay, like granted, but you do have sort of the backbone. You have the blueprint of the, source material of the book, the comic book. The you're new- telling that story. You're taking the story and characters from the book. You have the beginning, the middle, and kind of there for you to, to work off of. Whereas in the, in the, in the Godfather 2, as an example, you are coming up out of your own creative mind, a whole new beginning, middle, and a whole new story. That like for the Sunrise movies to be, that have to be adapted is insane. It's like, okay, sure, we had these characters in a movie before, but you're thinking of a whole new movie, a whole new thing. That is original. That is, that is an original idea. Like if I made a movie about Abraham Lincoln <laughs> and I just did it out of my mind as to what I thought he was doing the night he was assassinated, that should be an original screenplay, not adapted because we all know who Abraham Lincoln is. Like that's in, it's so stupid. Here's the best. Uh, the best argument in your favor, I think. The adapted screenplay nominees were Godfather 2, the winner, of course. A movie I've never heard of called The Apprenticeship of Dudley Kravitz. Lenny, which is by Julian Barry based on his play Murder on the Orient Express by Paul Den, based on the Agatha Christie novel. And what I wouldn't have mind was the winner, Young Frankenstein, by Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks, based on the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. <laughs> That's an adapted screenplay, which is, you're right, is bullshit. Wait, was this run it? Was The Great Gatsby up for adapted screenplay? No, The Great Gatsby only got a uh, costume and a uh, score nomination. Young Frankenstein is definitely an original screenplay. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's so stupid. Like, that's insane. And then same with Godfather 2. Like, it's just like, okay, you used a chapter. What I'm guessing is like a chapter out of the book of young Vito, and you put that in this movie. You're right, it's chapter three of the novel. How can you compare that to Murder on the Orient Express, where it's all laid out for you? Like, I bet if you watch, I'm guessing that's the Sidney Lumet one, right? Yep. If you see that movie and you read that book, it, there's a lot of the same thing. Like, you know, like, if you know what happens in the one, you know what's going to happen in the other. Like, there's not a lot of, like, they kind of, you know, they add their own dialogue and their own little moment. They, you know, it's its own beast trying to figure out how to adapt an already thing that exists, a thing that already exists. But it's like, it's just not fair to give little Mel Brooks and Coppola adapted screenplay. Like, those are original screenplays. They are not adapted. The Academy, you are full of shit. Like, that is the disrespectful to the people that think of their own thing. That's insane. <laughs> we can argue about this all day. So, Godfather 2, also famous for being the first sequel to win Best Picture, yet not the first sequel to be nominated for Best Picture because you had The Bells of St. Mary's nominated, which was the sequel to, what was that, the movie? The Bing Crosby movie. Going Uh, My Way. Going My Way. So that was a sequel nominated, because Going My Way, I don't think it was. Did it win Best Picture, or was it his nominee? Going My Way did win Best Picture in 1944. So 
So then Bells of St. Mary's, its sequel was nominated. It wasn't called Going My Way 2 at the time, but uh, that was a sequel. But Godfather Part 2 won Best Picture, and it was the first sequel to win until Return of the King, the, the Peter Jackson the third Lord of the Rings movie, right? Oh, right. That, that devastating moment that I blanked from my memory. That movie's great. Return of the King? Yeah. No, and it's no. a symbol that the whole, it's like, to me, that's a symbol of we're giving it to this whole trilogy, which is all three of those movies are great. It would be weird to give it to the, just the first one or the second one, knowing that there's more to come. You give it to the third one as a symbol saying like, we're, this is the whole show, is the whole movie series is the best picture of the year. You don't like that movie? I, I mean, it's the weakest of all of them. No way. Uh-uh. If you watch yeah. the director's cut, the extended version, it's great. Uh, no, I have not been able to bring myself to watch <laughs> however long. God, those movies are already so long as it is, and now there's direct, like, super ultra-long director's cuts. No, so I... Yeah, Return of the King, I've got problems with as a movie on its own, as it being, and I'm, this is when I learned that the Oscars were not, you know, a meritocracy, but I stayed with them because I just, that's just my thing. I just, I love movies. You know, sometimes the team in the Super Bowl deflates the balls and cheats, but you keep watching the Super Bowl if that's your thing. Yeah, it's like, no. Should have won Best Picture of the Year that was Return of the King, AJ. What that was 2003 Oscars. Well, quite the, the, the answer is obviously lost in translation by Sofia Coppola, who should have been <laughs> the best director. I do love that movie. I, you know what? I agree. That was the better, that was the better movie that year. That was the better Best Picture because he also had Master and Commander, which is great, Mystic River which is terrible, <laughs> and Seabiscuit, which is passable. It's totally enjoyable. It's, a, it's totally the movie you expect it to be, which is fine. But, um... No, I remember that Oscars, it was the first Oscars I watched in college, so it was early 2004. Yeah. And, yeah, I didn't know the Oscars were political and, you know, they were like, oh, well, we'll just give it to the last movie, even though that's that's the weakest one of all of them. And so I'm just there watching it with my friends. And I remember, I'm not exaggerating this distinctly, my friends, they cleared all the stuff off of the coffee table in in front of me because they just knew I was going to flip out when Lord, when Return of the King won Best Picture, I don't. I think I I quietly got up and left the room and went to the bathroom for a while. AJ, it's the Best Picture of of two thousand three. Just just accept it. Return of the King, a part three. We've had a part two. We've had a part one. Best pick, Best Picture. We've had a part two. We've had a part three now. So now we're waiting for a part four. We almost had it with Mad Max Fury Road. That could have been the part four that won Best Picture. That should have. That sh that was the best picture that year. Should have won. I don't know what it lost to. I don't remember. What did? What is spotlight? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Fury Road. But, but I I I'm willing. So famously, these are the only two sequels that have won. But I'm willing to put in the argument. Doesn't Silence of the Lambs count as a sequel? Ooh. Like Red Dragon was first. 
Manhunter as a movie, Silence of the Lambs, the second Hannibal Lecter movie, the second book. Doesn't that count as a part two? Doesn't that count as a sequel? How come no one talks about Silence of the Lambs is a sequel? Different actors, different Hannibal Lecters, but you can watch the one movie and then watch the other next to it and it totally works. You're right. People view Patriot Games as a sequel to Hunt for Red October, though that's a different actor on a different event and a different story. So, like, I say bullshit. Give credit where credit's due. Silence of the Lambs also a sequel to One Best Picture. I agree. Did I blow your mind with that one? <laughs> I never think of Silence of the Lambs in that way. Yeah, but I do think of Red Dragon as the prequel because it came after. And it's telling the story that happened before. Manhunter's the first. But Manhunter was the first. And it was the first movie based on the first book. I'm pretty sure Silence of the Lambs novel had come out by the time Manhunter was made. Yeah, I'm not sure when that book came out, but maybe. But, uh, and here we are talking about Michael Mann yet again. Maybe we need to have him in the Director's Walk podcast someday. AJ, I know you don't like him. We've now mentioned two of his movies in the same episode. The movies of his I like, I really like, and everything else is okay or not good. <laughs> I mean, so, hey, I'll watch James Caan steal diamonds or whatever he does. Oh, man, that movie's good. I with ice. <laughs> so uh, this movie had a lot of Oscar nominations for actor. So you had Pacino for Best Actor, who lost to... Um, Art Carney. Art Carney for Harry and Tonto. You had supporting supporting actress, you had Talia Shire. Talia, how do you say your name? Talia? Talia. Talia. Well, I think it's Talia. On the, the commentaries for The Godfather, Coppola only ever calls her Tally. Because that's like her nickname. Who did she lose to, AJ? She lost to Ingrid Bergman from Murder on the Orient Express. Okay, sure. It's like, just, yeah, sure, I can understand that. Interesting that Talia was nominated because she's not in the movie a lot. And she has sort of, like, she does have that great scene where she talks to him about, like, be nice to your brother Fredo. Like, that's a great scene. But she's not in the movie a lot. But then again, Ned Beatty won the Oscar for Network, and he's in that movie for, like, two minutes. So Also, Ingrid, also any character in Murder on the Orient Express that isn't Albert Finney's Poirot, who's a questionable Poirot, <laughs> uh, is only on the screen for a very limited amount of time. There's so many characters in that movie that no one gets a whole lot of screen time. But, you know, it's Ingrid Bergman. She's playing Greta Olsen. Yeah, that's, that, that's a real, you know, showy role. And then we have supporting actor. We have three actors from this movie nominated with Michael Gatso as Frankie. Which, which is great. I, I didn't know he was nominated for an actor. I've always loved him. I only knew him in the movie Alligator as like, I think he's like the angry police chief or the mayor. I don't, whatever. He's like, I just know. I've of, never seen that. Is that like a Jaws Piranha knockoff? Jaws ripoff, but written by John Sayles. So it's better mm. than because he's brilliant. And it's Robert Forster, which also heightens it. So it's Robert Forster trying to catch this big alligator. But my, there's a lot of scenes of Michael Gatso just yelling at Robert Forster that he should like do better and find the alligator quicker. I think he's got to be his boss. I, I don't remember the details of what the relationship is. I don't know if he's a cop or a, the mayor or whatever. You should watch Alligators. Okay, but Michael Gatso steals that movie. He's amazing. And he, he has his little voice. 
because that's his real voice. So he must have had a sore throat daily. But uh, so he was nominated. Lee Strasberg was nominated for Roth. And De Niro was nominated for Vito. Um, is this the only time that a movie has gotten three nominations for acting in the same category? Uh, the other time would be Godfather 1. Pacino, James Caan, and Robert Duvall all got supporting actor nominations and lost to Joel Grey for Cabaret. And then going way back to 1935, uh, Franchot Tone, Clark Gable, and Charles Lawton all were best lead actor nominated for Meet Me on the Bounty. And they lost to Victor McLaughlin for John Ford's The Informer. But uh, De Niro, De Niro won. Yeah, is, somehow like did not split the vote. He won. He won the first of two Oscars because the second time, of course, Raging Bull a few years later, and the third for Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> Three Oscars that he has, but he won. And it's interesting because he won in a role where he barely speaks English. So he won acting for a role that's like mostly in Italian. And I mean, I mean, like, and that kind of sealed the deal of him being like, you're a great actor now. Like, you're in this hit, huge movie. You're in this hit movie, and you win the Oscar. Well, clearly, you're like now one of the great actors. And then, of course, the next movie after this is Taxi Driver, which is like maybe his best or one of the best, you know. So like, this kind of sealed his fate of like, you are going to be considered one of the, the big guys, one of the big people from this era. We talked about this in the last podcast of like how many other directors had two movies in the same year nominated for picture. Cause this year you had conversation and Godfather too. And I did a bit of research. So I'm not just like lying. Like I normally do. There's a bunch, there's actually a lot. Cause we, we mentioned Steven Soderbergh with uh, in the year 2000 with traffic and Aaron Brockovich, but there's a few of them there in 1932 Lubitsch had two movies. Oh, right, right. Um, he, wait, wait, they were 32, so this was One Hour for You and um, The Smiling Lieutenant? Yep, yep. And then 36, you had a guy named Jack Conway, whom I've never heard of, have The Libeled Lady and The Tale of Two Cities. Who's Jack Conway? I have no idea. That is lost to the past. I've seen a lot of movies. I've never heard of that man's name. Wow, I am, I'm working my way through watching every Best Picture nominee in chronological order. That's my hobby, up until the ones I've seen currently in theaters. Anyway, it's cinemathenandnow.blogspot.com if you want to follow along with me. Yeah, I forgot about those two, about the same guy directing those two movies, Tale of Two Cities, big production, big budget of a literary adaptation, Libeled Lady, wonderful screwball comedy, which I think, should, that was my vote for 1936 Best Picture. Then 38 and Michael Curtiz with Four Daughters and Adventures of Robin Hood in the same year. 39, you had Victor Fleming with two big ones, Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. Like that's, that's crazy that that guy made those two movies in the same year. Like those movies are still iconic, still remembered. You know, what do you think politically about Gone with the Wind? You know, but like, it's still like, those movies are big time. Those are some big time classic Hollywood movies made by the same guy in the same year. Can you imagine that? That's crazy. Then you have the big one, 1940. You have three directors, each with two movies up for best picture. So you have John Ford with Grapes of Wrath 
in uh, The Long Voyage Home, Sam Wood, don't know who that is, with Kitty Foyle in Our Town, and Alfred Hitchcock with Rebecca and Foreign Correspondent, and of course, Rebecca won. But that's like the same year. Those three guys each had two. Like, that's just like a testament oh. to the studio system, and you just had like eight dudes just making everything, and the three of those eight dudes just happened to make six of the best movies of that year, according to the Academy. Then you have in 1941, Sam Wood, again, don't know who he is, but I guess great, comes back again with King's Row and Pride of the Yankees, both up for Best Picture. Who is this Sam Wood? Is he one of the great directors we just don't know about? We're that ignorant. I mean, clearly he was a director of his time. You know, we just didn't know who he was. And then after Godfather II and before Soderbergh in 1977, you have Herbert Ross with The Goodbye Girl and Turning Point in the same year nominated for Best Picture. There you go. Wow. That, that, that is that is accurate list. I'm not just going to wing it on that one because I want because I got complaints from listeners saying that I was just going off the cuff on my guesses on what was that. So that's the fact. There you go. Done. Thank you for uh, doing all that research and pointing out stuff that I researched and forgot. Yeah, I love any Oscar trivia. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. We we do we do research just. For you wondering, the problem is then we end up talking about stuff that we haven't researched <laughs> and don't use the research that we did. While each drinking a full bottle of wine. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying really hard to not finish off this bottle right now. But it's Godfather 2, the movie's so long. I'm trying really hard to finish this bottle of wine and I'm about one glass away. I wonder who, in a few, if that will happen again. Because like people don't hammer out movies in the way they used to. Will there be someone with two pictures? Like the only director I can think of of recent, like and I'm thinking recent, like ten years, who can do that is Spielberg. Like Spielberg will still occasionally do two movies in the same year. Like he did, um, like he did like War Horse and Tintin in the same year. You know, like I don't know if I don't remember if either of those are up for Best Picture. I don't think maybe they weren't. War Horse was. Great movie. But like he often will do, like he did Schindler's List in Jurassic Park in the same year. Like he did uh, Catch Me If You Can and War of the Worlds or, or Minority Report. I don't remember which one. He did do those. Uh, no, those were all consecutive years. I thought they were the same year. No, Minority Report was 2001, Catch Me If You Can 2002, and War of the Worlds was 2005. Are you sure about this? I'm going to look it up right now. I have my phone in front of me. I'm not going to make this mistake again. I'm going to say that I'm right. Oh, no, no, sorry. I, I was wrong. Munich and War of the Worlds was the same year. But Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report were the same year. They were? That's 2002. Yeah. Minority Report was 2002? Yeah, Minority Report and Catch Me If You Can. You're right. That's the year I was in the hospital for a month. Oh, no. You were in the hospital for a month. Well, I'm glad you're better. Yeah. Um, I had I had a really bad case of pneumonia oh. in, uh, in December of that year, and I watched one of those movies, if not both of them, yeah. on in my hospital room. I just lucked out and got a uh, a room with a TV that had a VCR, so I had my mom go rent movies or tape movies off of TCM and then bring them to me and I'd watch them. And Minority Report was one I watched on this little like 10 inch TV VCR combo in my hospital room while taking 
uh, medication for my extreme pneumonia. Where's my tax money going that in 2002, a hospital can't have a DVD player in its room? I recant my 2002 taxes. Amistad and Lost World in the same year, like Spielberg often will do like a, a, like a fun movie and an Oscar-y movie in the same year. He must hate his children and just wants to work the entire time. <laughs> but I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't think he does. But uh, that's just how he does. He's a busy, busy man. Like always in Last Crusade was the same year. Like he often doubles up in these things. Like this is, this is what a uh, Spielberg is about. So I feel like he could again accomplish it perhaps if he doesn't slow down in his golden years. But I can't imagine anyone else. Like, like we're not going to get two Tarantino movies in the same year, two P.T. Anderson movies, two Sofia Coppola movies. Like, none of these people are going to give us two in the same year. Like, I think people like to take their time now. It's not much the same. It's not the same thing. Like, the studio system is different. I think people like their leisure time. I think they like to work hard and play hard. So what's left on Godfather 2, AJ? I think we've covered a lot that we, as much as we can, but I just want to mention in terms of mirroring between the first movie and the second movie, Diane Keaton's final shot in part two is once again, the door being closed on her, but it's so much crueler and meaner this time. Like when it's, and it's literally the final image of part one, the door closes on her. She realizes her husband is a murderer and a criminal. And this is just his business. And you have no part of this part of my life. You're totally shut out. And that's just the way it has to be. But when she has to leave because he's now come home and he can't be in the same house with her anymore. And he closes the door on her. Not, not really slams it, but almost. And she looks like, like frightened and like she's about to say something and the door just closes on her. And it's just so poignant and mean and affecting. And it's just one, like a further nail in the emotional coffin of Michael Corleone. It's like if, if all this other stuff hasn't, <laughs> hasn't turned you off from him, you know, him beating her, him just so fucking coldly slamming the door on her to keep her away from her children. Yeah. It looks like she's about to say something, but she doesn't even get to start and he slams the door on her. Um, yeah, Michael Corleone, not a good guy. Not a good husband, not a good boss, not a good brother. And just John Cazale is, he's brilliant. He's great. There's a documentary called I Knew It Was You, which I highly recommend everyone go watch. And he again was with Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon. That's the year after this, 75. And then he's in a movie with De Niro, with The Deer Hunter. And then he left our existence, sadly. He left this, uh, left this dimension. The only actor with a perfect filmography. So I think the next episode, we're going to try to do the complete saga. The, uh, it's going to be... I think, thankfully, a short, much shorter episode because we don't have to go into the details of plot or acting like we do with these. The version of The Godfather that uh, was put chronologically with more footage. So I think we're going to try to watch that as the next one. If not, we'll be talking about Apocalypse Now, but like we'll see. So thanks for listening with us. It was a long movie, so it's a long episode. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter, at Director's Wall. 
email us directorswall at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at AJGO85, also on Letterboxd under the same thing. Everyone stay safe out there. So I have a question mark about what we'll be doing next time. Either we're watching a lot of versions of one movie or watching a really long version of two movies put together. So stay tuned, my friends. No, I always try to take care of you. Take care of me? Mikey, you're my kid brother, and you take care of me? Second, you're my kid brother. My name is not Mikey. Send Fredo off to do this. Send Fredo off to do that. Len. I'm smart. Stop it. I'm smart. I want respect. Would you stop with this Godfather stuff?